Hello, and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished career diplomats. I'm your host, Jeremy Beer, recording in Washington, D.C. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Tony Wayne, who worked in the State Department with distinction for over 40 years, including service as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Kabul, the Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs, and as ambassador to both Argentina and Mexico. Ambassador Wayne holds the rank of career ambassador, the highest rank in the United States Foreign Service. Ambassador Wayne, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, Jeremy. Sir, let's start at the beginning of your career, if we could. You were born and raised in the Bay Area. You went to Berkeley to study political science, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, got a master's degree from Stanford, then got another master's degree from Princeton, and then you joined the service in about 1975. You're 25 years old at that point, and you could have done a number of interesting things with your life. But you chose the Foreign Service. Why? Well, I was very interested in international affairs, and I thought I wanted to become a professor. But the more time I spent in graduate school, I came to the conclusion I really wanted to get out and try and practice the relations, work in the relations between countries do things working with officials of other countries, working with other societies, and trying to bring nations together in constructive ways. And so I took the Foreign Service exam in graduate school at Princeton, and it worked out. When they offered me a job, I was just finishing my oral exams at the end of my master's program, and I was ready to go and ready to go try working in the government and being out there working with other governments around the world. So that makes a lot of sense. When you started your career, you worked as a China analyst on the more academic side, but then you went to Rabat as a political officer. When you came back, you worked for three or four more years on the seventh floor, first as, I believe, a line officer and then as an assistant to then Secretaries Haig and Schultz. When you look back, do you have any leadership takeaways or impressions of Haig or Schultz or Vance or Muskie that stuck with you? After working for several secretaries of state and through a transition between the Carter and the Reagan administration and then having observed the bureaucratic fighting going on within the Reagan administration, which was very tough, I decided I wanted to go back to school and learn about <laughs> leadership and about public policy. And so I worked hard to get to go back to Harvard for a year to the Kennedy School, but it was because I'd observed people in top positions struggling with each other, the complications of policymaking, and I really wanted to understand, is there a way to do this better? What was happening here? Explain to me what I was living through and how could I learn to help affect that in a positive way? So I did learn a lot about leadership. I learned from observing Secretary Vance that you can get isolated from the White House and the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. I learned from Secretary Muskie, who was a very friendly guy and was fun to be around, that it's really hard to learn to be a good Secretary of State. And he didn't have a very long time in that job, and he was always absorbing new things. And since I was in the staff position, I could get a sense of how he and his personal staff were really trying to learn, and they had to learn a lot very quickly. Hmm. I then saw Haig come in, and Haig knew an awful lot about international policy, and he was a very good strategic thinker, very conservative, 
geopolitics, Kissinger School, but I saw that he couldn't get his substantive positions well considered because there were these struggles over influence inside the administration. And so often he would be right on the substance of what he was arguing for, but he would get into conflicts with others, somewhat because he didn't suffer fools lightly, but also because there was a whole different dynamic going on at the top of an administration about who has the most influence. And then I saw George Shultz come in, who had a very different approach. When I went to Harvard, one of the articles I read about was the Japanese style of management. It's sort of like the waves are going to keep hitting and you just have to be the rock and eventually the rock will hold out against the waves. Hmm. And Schultz was a little bit that way. But even he, with this very good approach to management, got locked into bureaucratic battles in the broader administration because there was not a disciplined national security decision-making process. During the Reagan years, they went through a number of national security advisors, a number of models until at the end, they got to a model that worked, and Colin Powell was part of that final model that did work. So I came to see the importance of having a good disciplined process, the importance of building coalitions to get decisions made, and, of course, the importance of having the substance right. But you could have the substance right and then not have that correct substance recognized or implemented. At some point, you switched cones from being a political officer to being an economic officer. Is that right? I did become assistant secretary for economic and business affairs, but I never switched cones. My entire career, I was a political officer. But what happened was in the 1990s, I basically worked on Europe And I worked on the European Union as part of that. And I came to see how important economics were for our interests, for United States interests. And I also saw how the State Department greatly underappreciated how important that was. I still remember the first time when I was the deputy chief of mission in Brussels at the mission to the EU. I was in a meeting with a big U.S. tech company and they said – If we can just get this regulation changed, we will save hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And it just struck me, all of a sudden, this is really important. This is a big difference for our economy. And I saw that the EU could be a great partner for us internationally. And so as I worked on that all through the 1990s, I got to the point where I understood more about economics. I saw the importance of it. And very nicely, that was recognized, and I was asked if I wanted to become Assistant Secretary for Economic and Business Affairs. The key thing is that good economic officers have to have political skills, Mm -hmm. and good political officers need to understand economics. And you can't rise up to senior positions, or you shouldn't rise up to senior positions in the State Department unless you have a combination of those skills because you're going to need them when you get into policy-making positions and senior leadership positions, either in Washington or overseas and heading an embassy. So going from the Assistant Secretary of Economic Business Affairs, if you didn't have enough economics in that role, you take the reins as U.S. Ambassador to Argentina in 2006. And Argentina is 
struggling to emerge from a full-blown debt crisis. Right before you arrive in Buenos Aires, the Argentine government begins to implement their restructuring plan, bailing out bondholders who are holding around $65, $70 billion worth of Argentine debt, and Chavez and the Venezuelans are buying billions of dollars of that debt. The IMF is involved. Private companies in Argentina are borrowing dollar-denominated debt to finance operations. Walk us through what it's like to arrive in a country that's going through a crisis like that as the most senior U.S. official and how you managed your staff, particularly your Argentine staff, many of whom were personally affected by that crisis. That's right. And they were personally affected because the inflation rate was in reality around 20 percent or so, even though the government was reporting it much lower within a short period after I got there. I think the one thing I would add is that when I got to Argentina, there was the highest level of anti-Americanism registered anywhere in the hemisphere, (laughs) including Venezuela, was in Argentina. And that's because people did blame us for not helping them out of this debt crisis. Now, a lot of that was deflection from the real causes that they'd undertaken by poor policy decisions and poor practices. But it didn't change the fact that they felt they'd been suffering terribly, which they had, and that really the U.S. could have helped them, but it didn't help them. And so it was really a challenge sort of asking, can we build a productive partnership in this situation where there's so much resentment, there's not going to be an easy solution. You have U.S. bondholders pressing you to get the Argentines to give them more back from the bonds that they're holding. And so what we tried to do, very honestly, was to identify those commonalities between Argentina and the United States that we could start highlighting. And I need to add, this was a time when the Iraq war was going on and it was greatly unpopular in Argentina. Not that they were directly involved, they just thought it was wrong for us to be there and be doing what we were doing. So that was another area that they were regularly criticizing in the press and in the media. We tried to work on the economy and we tried to encourage a solution to the bondholders. But we looked to a few different problems where we could actually work together. For example, we tried to promote commerce. We looked at fighting drug trafficking. And by finding these other areas of commonality, we helped paint a bigger picture of the relationship. And one of the really interesting ones was Argentines loved American rock and roll. So we started finding opportunities to partner with American rock and roll groups that were coming through Argentina and invite poor Argentines to come to their concerts for free, to hold music training sessions for young Argentine musicians, and publicizing this and publicizing that we all shared this love for music. And that included Argentine music and sessions where musicians from both sides came together. Can you think of any examples? Can you remember any of the groups? One of the very funny first ones I had was when Kiss came to town. (laughs) And so I went to meet them before the concert, and they were all in their full high heels and painted faces and everything. And they were asking me about Argentine foreign policy. So I'm having this long discussion with them, (laughs) with everybody snapping all these pictures about Argentine foreign policy and the differences with the United States and how we could work this out. 
But then in other cases, I don't know if you remember a group called Toto sure. uh, that was very popular in the yeah, 80s. Yeah. They came through and yeah. they came over to my house and actually had a session with 20 or 30 young musicians and talked oh. to them about a career in professional music, how hard it was and what you had to do and the kind of things you needed to accomplish to do it. And then we had a group from Los Angeles called Ozo Motley yep. who came down and they went and visited drug rehab centers because a number of the members had had drug problems, addictions, had overcome them. They went and gave talks about overcoming drug addiction. And they had a joint concert with the high school band of the city of Buenos Aires where they got in the band and played with the kids. That's awesome. And the images of these kind of things just had a big impact of starting to change people's attitudes toward us. They didn't just think about us. In the bad light, they thought, gee, well, you know, we do share a lot with the United States. We don't like everything, but we share some things. And so that helped build a broader relationship, I think, a more broadly based relationship. It helped cushion us as we went through some of the jolts with the government itself. Your experience in Mexico somewhat echoes some of the themes you just raised with Argentina. You were ambassador to Mexico from 2011 through 2015. Your tenure as ambassador to Mexico may have corresponded to something of a high watermark in recent history in terms of our bilateral relationship and things have, I think, deteriorated since then. What does the future of the U.S.-Mexico relationship look like? How do we get past this set of cross-border issues to embrace and understand the much broader, much deeper relationship that our two countries have. Well, I agree with you fully that Mexico is the most important relationship we have that is not known about or appreciated in the United States. There is $1 million of trade every minute between the two countries. There are 35 million Mexican-Americans, people of Mexican heritage, that are U.S. citizens integrated in the United States. Across that 2,000-mile border that we share, there are a million legal crossings a day. So there's a tremendous interaction. And Mexico, over the last year, has become the largest trading partner of the United States. But there are these big challenges around migration and around public security. We need to tackle them, and we need to tackle them not just for the short term but for the medium term. So over the past year, the Trump administration got the attention of the Mexicans on migration by threatening to put tariffs on all the things they were sending to cross the border northward unless they stopped the flow of Central Americans, and they have effectively reduced it about 75 percent from the high point last May. But there's not yet a way to solve this over the medium and long term. We need a humane way of dealing with migration, put it in regular legalized channels, and then deal with what's pushing these people out to come north. And so that still lies ahead of us. Then on the cross-border crime issue, I think you're right that we were on a positive trajectory from about 2012 through 2016, even 2017, there were good things going Mm -hmm. on. But a couple things happened. One was that in the last years of the Peña Nieto administration, they did not pay enough attention to 
insecurity in Mexico. So the homicide rate just kept going up, set new yeah. records in 2018 and then again in 2019. Right. Crime just got out of control. Right. And a lot of that crime is related to the drug trade to the United States. It's estimated that these drug groups make 18 to $30 billion a year in the United States. Huh. And then a lot of that money gets back to Mexico. And some of it is they buy arms in the United States. Studies have found 70% of the arms that have been captured in Mexico, up to 70% are from the United States. So they buy this stuff, send it back. The money flows back, not all of it, but billions flows back to Mexico. And so with those billions, you not only buy guns, you can buy people, you buy corruption, and you threaten them or tempt them. And then you get in fights for control of the routes to the United States. Over the past years, we've seen a sharp rise, first in heroin trafficking to the United States and then in fentanyl trafficking, the synthetic opioid that is a lot cheaper for the drug trafficker and it's in smaller quantities than heroin even, so you can sneak it into the U.S. very easily. So what the U.S. and Mexico need to do now is actually get smarter and better at cooperating with each other. And we really haven't done that well over the last year, year and a half. There's been a deterioration in that cooperation. And very happily, there's some signs in the last two months of progress in that area that the Mexican government might now be willing to focus in ways that can actually enhance law enforcement. But it really has to take contributions from both sides of the border to make this work. And they both have to be convicted. You know, you can't discover after a year that your main interlocutor is actually dealing with one of the big cartels and getting payback from them. And they'll go after these three cartels, but not that one, because yeah. they're working with that one. You just yeah. can't have that. You have to have systems in place that you can trust each other you can know that if you share confidential information to go get the bad guys, that will stay confidential and you'll actually get the bad guys. You arrest them and then you're able to bring them to justice. And it's not that you're going to bring everybody to justice, but if you bring more to justice, you end this air of impunity, which has been too often the case for cross-border crime. Let's talk a little bit about your time in Afghanistan you volunteered to go to Afghanistan and you worked as the director for development and later as the deputy chief of mission. You worked under Ambassador Carl Eikenberry while you were there. This is 2009. 2009, 2010, 2011, those were the most violent years of the Afghan insurgency and certainly the years in which the highest number of American service members were killed. If you fast forward to today, we've just entered into a week-long reduction in violence agreement with the Taliban, and we're looking to sign the first phase of a peace deal aimed at ending the war. What did we get right in terms of our Afghanistan policy in the last 20 years, and what did we get wrong? We got some things right and some things wrong all throughout this process. I think one of the big challenges is that we sort of fought and refought the war every year or every two years because we turned over people so regularly, both civilians and military. And so there was a lot of knowledge and continuity lost in some of these years. 
over the long run, the biggest positive investment we made was the investments we put into education and health. We now have several million young Afghans, 20 to 30, 35, who've actually went through the whole system of secondary and university education and are now ready to take leadership and take their country forward. That was a tremendously important investment that we made. And a lot of those young people are women that never had these opportunities under the Taliban. The other big investment was basic health care and all the people that are alive because they were born and they lived through birth. They used to have one of the highest maternity mortality rates and infant mortality rates in the world, and that was greatly reduced. So over the long run, those are probably the two biggest investments. What we were less good at and what is really hard is the kind of investment to improve governance, to improve policy, to deal with what we would call corruption, which includes the traditional patron-client relationship that exists and then becomes the mega-corruption when you start putting the mega-bucks in that the U.S. and NATO put in, especially when there was such a heavy military involvement. Over 130,000 NATO troops were there at the height. And so I went there as this civilian and military upsurge was underway. We had $4 billion worth of assistance programs from the civilian side going forward, plus many hundreds of billions coming through military channels. It was not well organized and coordinated among the various agencies doing it, and that was part of what I was asked to help do under, as you said, Ambassador Carl Eikenberry, but Dick Holbrook also was the special envoy at that time. And it was really a hard thing to do, and we did some things okay, and we did other things less well. Part of the challenge is to be able to measure the results of what you're doing. And you have to not only have the systems to do that, but you have to have the time to be able to do that. And it was really challenging. And at that period of time, we were trying to work closely with the military. The military had certain timetables that they were trying to meet to bring stability. And all of the AID people and others that were working under me in that period of time were saying, we just can't do it in this time. We'll do our best. We'll try. But it's not really going to produce results except over a longer period of time. So that tension was going through what we were doing in the whole time we were doing it. On a personal note, I know you're the father of two children. What was it like for them growing up in the Foreign Service? What was your family life? Do you have any takeaways for folks out there that are listening that are raising kids in the Foreign Service or that are thinking about joining the Foreign Service and starting a family? Well, I think both of my kids and my spouse had very enjoyable times in the Foreign Service and living in other countries. We were able to work out our timing so they could, both of them, go through high school in the United States, having younger years overseas. But others that I know have wonderful times with their children going to high school with them in places overseas. And I think they see their lives have been enriched by this. It doesn't mean it's always easy. Sometimes you get sent to difficult places. And for me, fortunately, I was sent to Afghanistan when my kids were both already 
out of the house, in a sense. They were going to college or in graduate studies. And so my wife actually came with me to Afghanistan and worked there also. But for others, it does, to be honest with people, it sometimes creates a hardship. If you have to be separated from your family and serve in one of these difficult posts where you can't have families there, and that is part of the reality that's out there. Hopefully, we'll have fewer of those places as we go forward and and get smarter as an international community in dealing with some of these fragile states. But that is part of the cost of serving your country. Just as our military colleagues are separated from their families, we in the diplomatic service also face those challenges. But there's a lot of enrichment in growing up in another country and having international friends at an international school or a host country school if you send your children there. It opens the minds of young people in wonderful ways and gives them something they can build on when they decide in what direction they want to go. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom or support that you would like to deliver to folks serving out in the field? I think what we've been learning over the past couple of years is how important diplomacy is, that you cannot over-rely on your military tools or your economic sanction tools. You have to be able to deploy the whole range of tools of influence that we have in diplomacy and talking to other people, understanding other people. Building commonality, building partnerships and alliances is vital in this world to success for the United States and for other nations. Sometimes you're going to build more commonality with some countries than others. But if you're not out doing that, if you're not talking, you cannot really succeed. And you cannot rely on virtual communications. You can't rely on telephone calls alone. You really have to get to know people and have trust and confidence in them to build lasting relationships and to forge solutions. There's some really difficult problems that are hard to do. And so all our colleagues out there in the diplomatic service of the United States are, we might say, doing the Lord's work. They're doing the work that you need to do for the good of your country, but for the overall good of building peace and prosperity in the world. Even if it might sound trite to say, but that's really what you're doing. And it's such a vital profession and so important for the United States that we invest wisely in this capacity. Ambassador Wayne, on behalf of all of our listeners, our heartfelt thanks for joining us today. You can find more detail on Ambassador Wayne's post-State Department career at the American University School of International Service, where Ambassador Wayne teaches as a distinguished diplomat in residence. You can find a list of Ambassador Wayne's publications and engagements at eawayne.com or the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars, where he is a public policy fellow and co-chair of the Mexico Institute. Special thanks to the Una Chapman Cox Foundation and the American Academy of Diplomacy for supporting today's program. If you're interested in exploring a career in the Foreign Service, please visit careers.state.gov to find out more about today's guest or to dig further into the history and practice of U.S. diplomacy. Please visit uccoxfoundation.org, adst.org, or 25yearapprenticeship.com. Lastly, please rate and review this podcast so that others interested in foreign policy and careers in the Foreign Service can find us. Thank you very much.